This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, what do you do after you've bought a 3D printer? But first up, here's the news. Chronic fatigue syndrome, brain inflammation. Using functional positron emission tomography, FPET, researchers at the Riken Center for Life Science Technologies, in collaboration with Osaka City University and Kansai University of Welfare Sciences, have shown inflammation in the brain correlates well with the debilitating symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. People suffering chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, experience debilitating exhaustion, a brain fog that makes concentrating and recall difficult, pain, and a host of neurological, digestive, and immune symptoms. It's been diagnosed only by elimination and the shopping list of symptoms. A diagnostic test would eliminate the uncertainty and help point the causes of the illness and possible treatments. The study featured nine people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and 10 healthy controls matched for age and sex. They filled in a questionnaire rating their levels of exhaustion, difficulty thinking, and pain in the muscles and joints. They found inflammation in the cingulate cortex, hippocampus, amygdala, thalamus, midbrain and pons, in ways that matched people's CFS symptoms. Someone who reported trouble thinking tended to demonstrate inflammation in the amygdala. Inflammation in the cingulate cortex and thalamus of CFS patients was associated with a high pain score, while inflammation in the hippocampus correlated with a high score for depression. An alternative name for chronic fatigue syndrome is myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME which alludes to inflammation in the brain. Many doctors have avoided the term because it was not certain that the brain was inflamed. The paper was titled Neuroinflammation in Patients with Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, Myalgic Encephalomyelitis, a Positron Emission Tomography Study, and was published in the Journal of Nuclear Medicine. Another study this year by Stanford University School of Medicine in California carried out a specialised magnetic resonance imaging MRI scan called Diffusion Tensor Imaging, DTI. DTI measures the diffusion, that is the movement or spread, of water through the brain tissues, which provides 3D images of the size, shape and microscopic structure of tissues. They found a significant abnormality in the right acuic fasciculus. This is a nerve fibre tract that links the temporal cortex on the right side of the brain with the frontal cortex. It's not well studied. While the link was shaped differently than in healthy people, the grey matter temporal and frontal lobe terminators linked by the right arcuate fasciculus were thicker, 
The more abnormal the right arcuate fasciculus was, then the worse the symptoms. The researchers feel that these changes might be a reliable indicator of CFS for future diagnostic tests. Standard functional magnetic resonance imaging showed that overall there was a loss of white matter nerves in people suffering chronic fatigue syndrome compared to healthy people. The white matter consists of cables that let the grey matter information processing parts of the brain communicate with each other. This tallies with the idea of inflammation being a major part of the illness, as inflammation is known to attack the white matter of the brain. The researchers studied 15 people suffering chronic fatigue syndrome and compared them with 14 healthy subjects. Like the Riken study, it seems a very small number. I hope this leads to funding for follow-up brain scans of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Their paper was titled Right Arcuate Fasciculus Abnormality in Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and was published in the journal Radiology. And finally, this year, Griffith University in Queensland opened a chronic fatigue syndrome specialist clinic. People suffering chronic fatigue syndrome have been waiting a very long time for the diagnostic test that would reveal the physical cause and lead to treatments and ultimately a cure. First, they were treated as hypochondriacs, then they were treated as psychiatric patients, and more recently, they were ignored because nobody knows what causes the illness. Perhaps now they can be respected, listened to, and finally helped. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Shane Morris is a futurist who lives in Newcastle in rural New South Wales. He works on solutions to several problems we face today. The first problem he'd like to solve is for anyone to be able to make 3D objects without needing to learn how to use a computer-aided design program. I met with Shane at a coffee shop out the front of Burwood Library. I'd like to think that this country has quite a lot of potential for manufacturing ability, and certainly we're not short of a few intelligent people. I think with the recent closures of the Ford plant and the Holden plant and moving a lot of manufacturing overseas, and of course, you know, made in China, trying to cheap China fast, <laughs> We should try and, as a society, at least somewhat engage our young people with at least a bit of inspirational hope. And I would like to personify that in a network of robotic systems that are able to create whatever objects the user would desire. Now, you would say at this point that with 3D printers, there is a kind of a point where you get your 3D printer and you hook it up and you start working on it. And then you realize, there's a dead spot, 3D design. Now Thingiverse and other open source uh, websites such as GrabCAD, Thingiverse as I mentioned, a couple of others are starting to spring up with downloadable STLs that you can download and you know maybe edit a little bit if you have that kind of skill, but there seems to be little in the way of actual 3D design. Now I use a couple of online tools. I um, obviously have free CAD on my MacBook and stuff. I don't actually do much CAD to tell you the truth, but as you can see, I do have these drawings that I do do. 
you're drawing by freehand rather than on the computer. But I'm hoping to transcribe that into the computer at some point, yes. One of the technologies I've become aware of recently is obviously photogrammetry and 3D scanning. And this is probably the missing link for most people. Can you explain what photogrammetry is? Photogrammetry is a process where you walk around an object and take multiple photos at multiple angles. And then the computer program then stitches this together as a 3D model, say an STL file, of your object using the common points between all the photographs that you took. Programs like 123D Catch use this exact process, although the Swiss Institute of Technology have actually gotten it so good with their algorithms that it can be run on a normal mobile phone just taking a video of the object and then it's able to composite a 3D model from that video. So you basically get 123 catch on your phone and you take a whole lot of photos circling the object and then it stitches t together into a computer-aided design file that can be used by a 3D printer. That's correct. This is the essential missing link. One could take photographs of their pet, their spouse, their car, a train if they wished, and stitch it together and put it as a 3D model that's ready to be printed out. And you brought some models along to the interview today, so what have we got here? We have two examples of some 3D scans that I did with an Asus Action. I believe that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> the first one is a, well I call him uh, Father Christmas with dreadlocks. <laughs> and he is a real model. I hope that you put up some photographs of him I because will. he is a real model. I did not design him on a computer, I scanned him in from a life-size person. The other one is a young fella. He's less detailed and I'm taking different scans at different distances and different angles and stuff to actually ascertain where the loss of detail actually took place. But as you can see, they are pretty detailed. That's using a, a prime sense sensor. So you're using a prime sense sensor 3D scanner? That's correct. This is the sensor that's in the Xbox Connect and also the Aces Action cameras. So you've hacked the Kinect from the Xbox to make it a, a standalone 3D scanner? That's correct. The Xbox Kinect needs a 12 volt power supply for the motors and some of the actual supply of the camera is actually done with the motors as, uh, as well. But the Asus Action is a USB only powered affair. So it just plugs straight in the side of a MacBook or a laptop and it's able to go and of course it doesn't have a pan and tilt mechanism but this isn't needed especially with a 3D printed handle. This is done in resin, this is, or this is done in just plastic filament? This is done in ABS filament, uh, grey ABS filament, 1.75mm, and it's done with an up-mini printer, so it actually has the uh, heat chamber that was patented by Stratasys, as you know. How long does it take to print a little bust of someone the way you've done here? Those models are 6x5x6, six I believe, and they would take around about 2.5 to 3 hours. Two and a half for my young friend and about three for Santa Claus. So you can't quite set up a, a booth somewhere where someone could get scanned and then printed on an ABS printer and then take it home in a short amount of time? No, and this is not my intention. My intention would be, if I was to commercialise anything, would be to scan the people and then send that to a network of printers, such as I described at the beginning of the interview, and then send them the results by mail. There are ways of 3D printing more quickly though, aren't there? There are. There is a new printer coming out, the Peachy printer, which uses a photoreactive resin and it actually increases the print speed, although it's still done layer by layer. 
And how much faster is it? I'm not entirely sure I can give you figures, but I would say at least a 20% increase over, over the standard FDM process printers. So you're talking about if it's two and a half to three hours for a little portrait like these, 20% quicker, it's still going to be a few hours. That's probably about right. I'd be looking at about around about an hour and a half, but only because I know that the actual resin, the photoreactive resin, is floated on salt water. So there is a manual process where the salt water drips down from a reservoir tank into the build tank, and then the blazer plays over the resin and creates a model layer by layer. What about systems like, I've seen computer-controlled routers that cut shapes. So for example, there was one somewhere in Europe that I did a story on recently where they actually cut it into a, an ice lolly, like a, an ice block where they scan your face and then they cut it in and it seemed to be enormously faster than if you tried to put it in layer by layer on a 3D printer. 3D printing is known as an additive manufacturing process where you add from nothing and you keep on adding until you have the model. CNC routing is known as a subtractive method and subtractive means you start with a block of whatever material it is that you want and then you start subtracting from it by literally routing it or pushing away certain parts of it so on and so forth when you're talking about a network of 3d printers are you talking about like a whole series of 3d studios around australia well i'm talking about anyone who would like to participate in the network who believes that they have the skill enough to maintain the machines because robots are not little things just you know play around on the floor they're like a car you tune them even the more commercial ones you still need to tune them to some degree although tuning processes are more automated you can consider anything that is controlled by a computer literally a robot although i'm stretching the broadest definition here a laser printer is a robot a coke machine with an arm in it is a robot a hard drive a mechanical magnetic hard drive is a robot and it suits the uh, definition that it will take an input, actu uh, operate on a program and actuate an output. So the big thing here is I finally understand about your, your network now. So you're going to get all the people who've bought 3D printers and understand them well enough to properly maintain them and operate them, put them into on the net together where they can take up jobs and actually make use of their 3D printer, not just as a hobby to occasionally print a toy, but as part of an ongoing network to get things done. Well, I mean, look, the thing is, I broke a bracket for a clothes hanger uh, rack kind of arrangement, and I thought if only I had a network where I could just send away and get my bracket reprinted, that would be just so stupendously wonderful. I would love that so much, and I'm looking at the, as I said at the beginning of the interview, the current situation in Australia where we have this dire lack of manufacturing capability. Why don't we just put our thinking caps on and start making advantage of all this? The network exists now in terms of the internet. It's not that it's unreliable. And there are people who are willing to learn out there about maintaining robotic systems and keeping them at fine tune. And this doesn't have to be a full-time job for anybody. This, is, this can be something that they can take the, onto their queue and have it run overnight or in the afternoon or whenever they've got time and then send off. That's right. The printer will indicate to the network when it's, got, when it's available for a print. So if you want to run one overnight and make a bit of extra cash on the side, you can run a print or run a CNC route and 
in the morning you have object throw it in the post and send it to wherever the other thing with placing these printers and CNC routing machines and stuff locally would be that there would be less transportation costs and less transportation time you order object maybe two days later you get object not two weeks later you get object the only competition to any of this in Australia at the moment is the network of 3D print studios and my understanding is only really three of those at the moment in Australia well that is true and I mean I have investigated uh, 3D printing technology quite extensively um, although at the moment I'm talking about hobbyist level kind of stuff I've actually investigated uh, paper-based 3D printing on a professional level and it looks quite wonderful of course the machine is quite expensive although feedstock is not just a bit tit, tit for tat but the thing is I believe that I mean I trust in the ability for society to actually help itself and this is a way forward we have plenty of people interested in robotics it is a topical interest at the moment we see it in the news all the time I mean the bit where the police commissioner was screaming about 3d printed guns and you know I mean we have all this stuff around us and more and more people are picking it up I live in Newcastle now and I run into people all the time who say we love robotics we want to know more about it and I'm I mean I started doing electrical engineering but I'm going to try and transfer through to mechatronics engineering and the thing is I think that we are at the catalyst point the critical mass point almost where we are going to get a interest that will sustain a much more I guess mobile economy this was uh, mentioned once in uh, the movie Species, a total mobile population when they were talking about LA. But I mean, look at Australia. There are vast distances between geographically uh, settled areas. And the only thing that really net links them these days is some railways, roads, and the internet. So why don't we start making advantage of what we've got instead of saying, well, we're beating our heads against the wall here and send everything overseas. Now, in the US, there's courier companies that are getting 3D printers in. So is that something where if you partnered with couriers, it would be easier than getting people to drive off to Australia Post? Well, I think that would be a good idea. I know Amazon is going into the 3D printing so that they reduce transit times for the actual shipping. And these are all, all good ideas. Uh, courier companies probably would want to look into this and of course I designed some courier-based software before to coordinate courier deliveries over a large dispersed area so the ideas for that is still in my head if not the code. The logistical effort is we are looking at our situation going well you know great di dispersion of geographical settled areas uh, you know this is you know obviously <laughs> counteractive to the effort but it can be used to actually obviously bring the effort to a much greater height uh, the other thing is you know if you go onto like uh, preciousplastic.com uh, the fellow who designed phone blocks Google's project Ara he's finally gotten back and written up some notes about uh, plastics recycling turning uh, conventional PET bottles that you'd normally throw out coke bottles juice bottles uh, milk bottles pardon me into uh, actual 3d printer filament and other types of uh, plastic product and feedstock for other machines, injection molding and that kind of thing. I believe there was a project on Kickstarter for a device that you could buy that would 
turn your PET bottles and milk bottles into plastic filament for your 3D printer. And while the quality would be lower than say a uh, ABS filament that you'd purchase at maybe Libina or something like that, nine times out of 10, I reckon you'd get a pretty good print and the satisfaction that that bottle didn't go straight to your local landfill. So in addition to your 3D printing network, you've got a whole bunch of other things for the future and other ideas you're working on. Well, that's correct. Um, I mean, one of the biggest problems that's placing this society today, and it's the big white elephant in the room that we're all going to be afraid to look at, so I'm going to point right at it, plastics going into the ocean. Now, movements like Plastic Bank have um, actually set up some kind of, um, I guess, say, uh, efforts against this. But I would like to see perhaps solar-powered boats literally take to the ocean. They're robotic, they're autonomous, and they just pick up whatever plastics happen to be floating around and process them, ready to be turned into feedstock back on shore. Um, it was once said that even though that plastics on floating around on the oceans is an ecological disaster, getting diesel-powered boats to go out there and pick it all up would be an ecological disaster, uh, say, ten times greater than actually going, just leaving them there. But this isn't, you know, an, a, a cause to just sit here idle. We should be doing something about this, and we have some of the best technology in the world available to us now. Why don't we get a bunch of lithium-ion phosphate batteries, which are, you know, safe. They do not poison anything if they were to be ruptured. And equip them with solar panels and just put them straight in the ocean and wait for them to come back with a whole heap of feedstock. It would just return to shore when its hopper was full. That's what it would do. And if you had dispersed um, feedstock areas on shore to be turned back into filament or whatever plastics material that you want, you, you could literally disperse these over the eastern coast of Australia if not the western coast of Australia but the thing is with thermoplastics which is pretty much every plastic known to man today thermoplastics can be remolded to a new shape with just the application of heat yes they will incinerate if you overheat them but they can be remolded into any form that you want just with the simple application of the correct heat that was part one of a two-part interview with futurist Shane Morris Listen to a future episode for part two. Ksenia Novenchka, from the Department of Linguistics at the University of Canterbury, gave her three-minute thesis, Non-Native English Accents. How malleable are they? Good afternoon, everyone. We'll start with a game for those of you who don't know me personally, especially those of you who weren't to the semi-finals today. <laughs> I'll ask you to try and guess where I'm from based on my accent. You can have three goes, and please don't be shy. Jamaica. Jamaica. <laughs> no, that's, that's a little far. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, closer. Bingo. I don't really have a typical Russian accent, do I? <laughs> we all have a unique way of speaking. In native English speakers, we expect the accent to betray their origin. In second language speakers of English, however, we often regard the foreign accent as something that they should get rid of. We might like to think that we've moved on from overt racial or ethnic discrimination, but linguistic discrimination rules in the 21st century. There are multiple cases of people being fired or not hired because of their accent. The employers might say, 
the accent interferes with the worker's responsibilities. But what if the speaker is perfectly intelligible? Can accentedness alone be the reason for punitive measures? There are two things that I'm addressing with my research. First, I would like to show that the accent is an integral part of one's identity. I have recorded 20 international students speaking in four different communicative situations. This allows me to see how their accent changes depending on who they talk to and what the topic of conversation is. The second part of my project is a perception experiment in which people listen to the recordings and try to guess where the speaker is from, just like you did at the beginning of my talk. They hear each speaker four times, but they don't know that it's the same person talking about how they love to go fishing with their father at the age of five, and how now they're doing research and developing a computational model based on mathematical equations that simulates neurovascular coupling in the brain. My goal is to show that the native speaker is a social construct, and one and the same person might or might not be regarded as a native speaker in different situations. Understanding how our accents work is very important. In the globalized world of today, with so many international companies, laborers, tourists, people from different language backgrounds come in contact on a daily basis, and we want this contact to be pleasant and efficient. Thank you. You can find out more about the 3-Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambuka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. If you're listening to Diffusion on a radio station I haven't mentioned, please send email to science at diffusionradio.com and tell me which radio station you're listening to right now. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and do check the website for links and photos about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au it's much closer to going live. What rewards should I offer to people who help fund the show? Would you make a donation in return for hearing your voice on Diffusion? How much should I charge for you to read one of my scripts on air? A big thank you to David from Christchurch, who didn't wait for the crowdfunding campaign, but jumped straight in to donate directly using the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. 
You'll hear his voice soon in a future show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Tom Glazer with What Makes the Lightning. What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme Where the negatives and the positives make the heaven shine They were separated, then when they accumulated Got together and created lightning Now every little raindrop has some electricity Both negative and positive electricity And when the little drops get tossed through the air The negatives and positives separate there The negatives and positives separate Go off to different places and accumulate The bunches get bigger, the attraction gets stronger Till you just can't hold them back any longer Flash, a bunch of charges are off And as they streak through the air, a mighty electric current sweeps through the air. There's a heat and a flash as the charges dash between the clouds or the clouds and the earth to join the opposite charges there. Flash, crash, that's lightning, brother, and that's positive. What makes the lightning? It's a story in rhyme Where the negatives and the positives make the heaven shine They were separated, then when they accumulated Got together and created love